to Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter, and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode, where we'll ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whiskey production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whiskey Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch, leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whiskey Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a dram, enjoy our conversation about maturation. Evening, Peter. Hey, there's Stuart. Grand, grand. Good to oh, see you. Yeah, yourself too. Glad, glad to hear you're doing well. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, continuing our, our wee ramble through the warehouse, which isn't quite such a wee ramble anymore. <laughs> no, but well, I, I feel we... There's promising that in the air, the angels have promised us maybe we might tie the tie this ribbon up in a nice bow uh, tonight. Finally, get ourselves uh, to the end of maturation. We'll have grown up by the end of it. <laughs> you might have. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I think we just at the end of the last episode we just almost touched upon. That topic so close to your heart, the uh, yeah, the, the cast that bear not speak its name. <laughs> what, what are we driving towards here? What, what are we getting at? Well, I'm I'm steering around the subject here. It's so controversial. There's, there's a, the mighty the mighty Virgin Oak, isn't it? Which has become a, a, a very very much a, a phenomenon of recent maturation. Last last ten years or so. Yeah, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, full maturation, additional maturation, acing, finishing, it's all there. And I think we, we, we've spoken before, and I'd always seen Virgin Oak as an extension of that kind of finishing of seeing, because there was a definite sense of, of a progression from, use, uh, from you know, bourbon cherry and really not too much else it felt. I mean, I, I might be being oversimplifying there, but then with, then wine cast became a phenomenon, probably, and, and I would credit that to Brooklady. And then, then these other casks, Virgin Oak, which are, well, it, does, it doesn't get my vote, I suppose we've established. Yeah, and it's strange how it's just been so much in the ascendancy recently. I think I mentioned... I mentioned Andrew Jeffords. Uh, I almost seem to mention him in every episode, but I think I'd mentioned him not so long ago when we started talking about maturation. And that it's worth pointing out that in 2004, he was pointing out that all Scotch whiskey, across the board, all Scotch whiskey is matured in secondhand wood. And he, he, he goes out to say, that this is the single most, well, I've got it in quotes here, what does he say? He calls this the most astonishing fact in any whiskey book. The fact that 
everything that comes off us still gets put into secondhand wood. And that was in 2004. So mm-hmm. it's only, it's only really recently in, in, in terms of the history of the industry that the, the virgin wood has, has come so much to the fore. I was thinking about this. I wonder what your thoughts are. With the rise in price of, if you're a distiller and you're looking for something to give your spirit big flavours, big colour, big impact over a short period of time, you might argue that historically sherry casks are going to do that to a degree. You're going to get loads of colour and a big, you know, if it's a an Oloroso or a PX, you're going to get bags of flavour. But if they're becoming much more expensive, is the virgin oak uh, a cheaper alternative to that? That you're going to get loads of colour extracted from the virgin wood and you're going to get a big blast of flavour. Now, whether that's a flavour that is particularly enjoyable to some or not, I wonder, is it the economics that's driving it? You have to... You have to imagine something is, and um, you know, there's no doubt in that big burst of flavour and colour is definitely there. Um, as it as it is with the uh, finishing in a PX cast, you get a big burst of colour and flavour. And but I think in the end, the economics may drive it. But I, I think I, I remain, I think, a, a sceptic about how much that's of, of benefit because I think generally. Even with the, the event of PX as a, as a finish, it homogenizes the whiskey flavors for me. Um, that I find it hard to distinguish between one whiskey and another that's been given such a big jolt, a new jolt of those particular flavors. Now, I, you know, there are, I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggles with this, but at the same time, there are lots of folk out there who are really enjoying it. And I certainly have. You know, spoken to a number of people who enjoy a bourbon, mm-hmm. which again isn't, isn't my my go to drink. They say that that's one of the things they like about that enhancement of the whiskey. Is it goes more to the towards that field, but you know, for for a long time, like like the Jefford says, you know that for a long time, certainly the people I'd read over a long period of time talked about. Virgin oak being not suitable for maturing Scotch whisky. John Lamon talks about whisky spirit being too delicate. Philip Hills suggests that I'm sure it wasn't making up. So when you you go and look at these these folk again, so that he Philip Hill says whisky then acquires disagreeably high levels of various flavour components, and there is a general agreement that new wood does not produce mature whisky of an acceptable quality. Now, Philip Hills wasn't writing in the 21st century in, in that particular instance. And I think just on the cusp probably was Charlie McLean, who, you know, who's well-respected whiskey writer, mm. involved with a lot of bottling companies, Adelphi possibly most notably, and possibly Weems, um, says New York imparts a dominant woody flavour that is undesirable in Scotch whisky. So back to the Jefford, second-hand casks are used. I mean, even I've got I've got a quote from um, Diageo's. <clears throat> this is again from Jefford. 
The Agile's wood expert, Andrew Ford, says that within a year it is woody and over the top. So I'm, for, go, going from there then, I'm thinking, are there any, any examples of Diageo using virgin oak or even just virgin oak finished? I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with a Diageo. Yeah, me too. Just off the top of my head, it's just occurred to me there. I'm, I can't think of a Diageo expression that explicitly uses virgin oak. Maybe they, maybe they do and don't say. And another thing that might be driving it, I wonder if you're if you're filling in second fills or secondhand casks, sorry, if you're mm -hmm. filling in secondhand casks, um, let's say you're you're putting ten thousand liters into an array of secondhand casks, there's going to be some kind of inconsistency across the board across that those ten thousand casks, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's it's that desire and requirement of consistency that if you're using virgin oak by and large you're circumventing that possibility of there being a huge uh, amount of inconsistency within that batch of 10,000 casks and that if you're a if you're a big blending house or if you're a big producer inconsistency is really what you don't want by and large yeah. i think yeah, I wonder though, even slightly the other way around, take going back to your argument about or the possibility of just the cost of cash, the economics being a consideration. I mean, Diageo is a big enough company to have quite a lot of economical clout. And I think, I can't name the stat or statistic over off the top of my head, but I certainly have read that they have the majority of quality sherry casks in the industry. But that, I mean, that stands to the reason if you've got the most distilleries and the most warehouses, you're going to have the most casks. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's not really such a profound statement as it maybe seems at first, yeah. at first utterance. But at the same time, there's, I think there's something in there. I can't think of a particular expression released that, that has highlighted the, the that there's a virgin oak finish in a particular whiskey. Yeah. And with the exception of the special releases, you know, in the autumn of each year from Diageo, they tend to go for consistent large batch production. Mm -hmm. You've got those slightly nuanced ranges of Talisker, I'm thinking of, you know, like the, the Ruby Doo or the, the Potree, but I think the Ruby Doo is a red wine cast, and I can't remember what the Potree is. But again, although those are nuanced expressions, I'm not sure that they come in very small batches compared to other smaller distillers, you know, like maybe like the Deanstons and the uh, Tobermories and the Bunahavens or, um, yeah. you know, our old friend uh, of back production in terms of Springbank. Um, but then, you know, there's one, I can't remember them ever doing a Virgin Oak one. But, yeah, I think you've got something there that, that, that certainly... You put the two and two together, you know, in terms of the larger economic power of Diageo, not haven't had to rely on a new innovation to produce the burst of flavour and and colour um, in quite the same way as maybe other distillers have to be more ingenious and more mm. uh, more ingenious economically, even I suppose. 
Yeah, well, I, I know that listening to Mark Rainey or even the distiller over at Waterford, um, Ned Gann, they, they, they're quite open in saying a portion of every run, of every distillation run, a portion of that will go into new oak because they want that they're using those new oak casks primarily it sounded in the the um interviews that i was listening to they're using those new oak casks for color it's going to take a very sensitive hand to blend those things together yeah. um and not allow the new oak to dominate yeah and i also i saw i know razzy do this and also saw glenallachy got a recent expression of chinkapin new oak mm-hmm. now, I'm not exactly on top of exactly what that is, but certainly having tasted some of the razzi, it seems slightly less new oaky. Um, so it, it's designed or treated in a particular way is to not have that full uh, boxing glove clout of, of virgin oak. Yeah. The, the, the chinkapin, I believe, I think I'm, I think I'm right in saying that that's, um, that's referring to, I think, where it comes from. But the, the uh-huh. chinkapin oak is Quercus Mullenbergi. Oh. So it's a different, would that, would that be a different genus? Is that right? Very, very possibly. Um, or is Quercus the genus? No, Quercus is a species. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, um, Mullenbergi is a different species of oak and will have different characteristics, like a different you know, different um, tightness of the grain or whatever characteristics might be variable amongst different species of oak. So that, I think that's, I'm trying to dredge up. I was listening to a guy talking about Millenbergi and he said it gives something, but I can't remember what he said. I can't remember. I should have been paying more attention. Anyway. But, but even with... I've tasted the Razzie Jinkapin, but ultimately, I think, just as a matter of taste, what you do get is this blast of colour, clearly. Mm. And I, I think, from my sense of it, you, what you also get is the, the congeners that, or the congeners that provide the, the vanilla and the almond compounds are enhanced. And I suspect it's those compounds that I don't find quite so attractive. Okay. So, and I think if I'm doing my arithmetic rightly, there's something about, you know, like in small amounts, you can, they taste nice. But if you put too much vanilla in something, it gets overpowering. And that, that's, for me, as a, from a personal taste point of view, that's why virgin oak doesn't work because mm-hmm. you, get, you get these flavours register for me at a level that is, is unpleasant as opposed to enhanced you know, sure. you know for lack of a better term you know you put condiments on you know you put your salt and your pepper on your tea uh, to enjoy but if you put too much salt too much pepper it's no longer enjoyable and it's, it's at that level it's yeah. not it's not working for me and that i think that's particularly true of the for lack of the kind of fuller maturation of the more the extra maturations in terms of virgin oak there and maybe where there are some blends where there's virgin oak in i also find that I'm not sure if this is a chemical phenomenon or not, but those, the residue of that vanilla and the almond that I'm experiencing never quite goes away. 
when I when I when I swallow, those flavours remain, stay in my mouth for the next swallow. So although at first I might be thinking, oh, this is quite nice, a jam, over a period of time, those flavours build up to a point where I'm thinking, I'm not liking this. This this and I would I'd probably be saying something if we were having a jam saying, well, this this jam's flattering to deceive. It's punchy at the beginning, and now I'm getting loads of stuff mm. that I really don't like. Totally hands up. It's all about taste, you know. But there are times when I'm enjoying a jam, and then it comes unstuck, and you know, the the flavours that I begin to get, which I suppose are very personal for me, and aren't obviously obviously related to almond and vanilla, or things like plasticine and dentist masks. <laughs> it's the smell of nitrous oxide or, or laughing gas okay that combination i'm not sure when you drink the jam you really want to be remembered remembering to the dentist i i find the the new the, the virgin oak is it's the tannins for me that mark it out and it make it a little bit less in some cases i mean i've not i don't have a huge amount of experience with them i think it'd be interesting to sit down and and really explore it a little bit further. <laughs> Peter's shaking his head. <laughs> um, <laughs> the horror, the horror. <laughs> but I do, just to try and pin down what it is that, whether I, I, you know, I'm wholly on board with it or, or partially on board with it, or just as a way to get to know my own palate. So far, I've found it's like the really overtly like the really overt use of European oak, I find it's the tannins that make it less enjoyable for me. Strips all of the saliva out of my mouth. I, I went and had a tried to gen up on uh, what that is. And it is actually, it's a chemical reaction where it's stripping all the saliva out of your mouth. And that for me is just a little bit unpleasant. Yeah. Um, I, I think ultimately for me, what happens is... Um regardless of what the original spirit has been peated you know, or unpeated, or maybe it was a slightly older cask or whatever, that those flavours both flatten and overwhelm the whiskey characteristics. So I can't taste what, what I thought the original spirit was. If it was a peaty spirit, it still gets lost right. in, in those, so those flavours. So it there's a, an, an homogenizing experience for me where I can't distinguish one whiskey from the other. And most of the point, I don't like what I'm tasting or trying to detect anyway, because I'm so overwhelmed by this yeah. the vanilla and the almond and the plasticine. And the, it's horses for courses, isn't it? It is very much horses for courses, yeah. Maybe we should move on and leave, leave the virgin oak to not get too... Too, over, too overwhelmed by it. Yeah, let's. Uh, when we're talking about that in specifics, generally what we're talking about is the the, the chemistry of the cask. What's the cask given us, and how how does it work alongside the spirit, and how does it interact, and how you know what does the what does the wood give to the spirit, take from the spirit, how does it change the spirit? But well, actually, there, there is maybe one, maybe a wee bit of a reprise to. We talked about the SWA rules last time and how oh, they yeah. were they were modified around the use or not use of cider cask. And it's also in kind of the use of cask. There's 
there's an explicit acknowledgement, I suppose, that the, 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 the blender who's putting this bottling together will, or are there, in their words, the type of cast used for maturation will be will have been determined by the chief blender who's seeking a particular character for the final spirit. Mm. So I think there's two things. There's one is an acknowledgement, different casts do different things. And I think there's a, a wee bit of a hint there that, um, for lack of a better term, monkeying around is allowed. <laughs> you, 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 can, you can distort or shift or encourage the spirit in a particular way. And mm. I think I think that feeds in. We were talking last time about one of the things that's fascinating about whiskey is how multifarious it is, how totally amazing it is to get. Well, how do you get? How do these flavors arrive? Yeah, in a, in a particular drink that we're having, and, so many and so different. Yeah, and we're not. I mean, we're not the only folk to think that because never short of a word. Jim Murray like, likes a wee bit of hyperbole. I'm sure he likes, certainly likes a bit of tub thumping when he's talking about his Bible. But and I don't, I don't want to be sounding critical for that because I want to draw on some of the other stuff when he talks about. Mm-hmm. Got, well, I thought enough to, to quote this is no other nation on earth can provide produce a spirit of any type that boasts such enormous diversity of style as Scotch whisky. I think that's what we were maybe struggling. I was kind of struggling to articulate at the end of our last episode. All of these wonders, you know, which brought us in right away back at episode one. How does this get from <laughs> the field into my glass and make me go, wow? Yeah. And and several times over, you know, and repeatedly year in year out. And more so, the more you look at it. Uh, there was one final slight stick in the spokes was <laughs> for all of that and I, I found we, we talked last time about not being quite able to square some circles and I found another circle I couldn't square either is that for all this wonderment and well if, if our jibber jabber hasn't been in but wonderment I don't know what it has been about but the SWA rules say for all of that for all the monkeying about no matter what cast you've got in no matter where you started from, you will have followed that particular production process, and then you mm. put it in the cast. You put the spirit in the cast, and wait for the wonder to arrive. But what comes out must be a spirit which has a taste, aroma, and colour generally found in Scotch whisky. And uh, that 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 feels to me vague and slightly disappointing at the same time. Yeah, so for your for your whiskey to be deemed whiskey, it's got to be vaguely like whiskey. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I read that as well, thinking that sounds like describing a square by saying it's square. Yeah, I felt I felt slightly underwhelmed. <laughs> Let's just say I didn't quite capture the magic that I was hoping <laughs> to be able to express. <laughs> yeah. And I think the magic, the magic rolls on. Like we're talking about the magic of looking at the barley, then going, "How does that get to this liquid in my glass?" And the more you look at it, the more the more wondrous it appears. And we're in the warehouse, and I'm talking about what the cask is doing, what's the, how how, all, how are all these interactions happening? And I mean, on one level, it's got to come down to chemistry. Well, on a lot of levels, it's got to come down to chemistry. And and I think 
quite possibly on <laughs> every level it comes down to the chemistry. Yeah. You you can't get away from it. Um, and well, maybe we should put in a caveat early that it, it's not just us who doesn't fully understand this. Oh, yeah. Despite all, despite all the, pardon me, the number of PhDs out there, the wonder that's gone on in terms of trying to understand wood, the interaction with the spirit with the wood, there's an acknowledgement really that the understanding of the chemistry is really is still in, in early doors here. Yeah, I think there's lots of reactions taking place that nobody can quite fully explain just yet. Whether, whether that's just around the corner or whether it's 10 years of research are needed or whether we'll ever find out. But I was, I was looking into the chemistry, the cask, and you know, how, mu how much is a cask responsible for the flavour? We've all heard the quotes of 60, 70, 80% of the flavour of your whiskies is down to, uh, down to the wood. And that, that right there is, that's a, a hornet's nest of uh, arguments and, and details being ignored and details being overblown and mm. there's so much going on in there but I was I was able to find out um this is primarily about bourbon barrels but through a kind of scientific experiments using gas chromatography it was found out there was there's 45 odor active compounds in a bourbon barrel sorry this isn't a spirit this isn't a spirit that's been bourbon matured. 45 odor active compounds. Now I know there's a lot more compounds in whiskey than that, but the sources I was reading from were quoting that there's 45 active compounds in bourbon and only bourbon matured whiskey. And only seven of these were found to have been from oak and extracted during maturation. So if 60, 70, 80% of your flavour comes from the cask, but in this bourbon whiskey, there's 45 active odour compounds mm. of which only seven can be found to have been extracted from the oak during maturation. There's there's definitely things going on there that nobody's explaining yet or, or mm. nobody's talking about. So the, the, I, I, I think it's just that, broad brush stuff is great for marketing it's great for selling stuff it's great for trying to bluster your point across but if you're looking at the finer details and you want to zoom in on the fine-grained detail of what's going on we find that our some arguments are perhaps built on sand um so looking yeah, at what, and much harder to well once you have looked at them a little bit more they're they, they require a little bit of effort to comprehend and make sense of and, and understand that there's a sequence also in particular things that happen maybe in the, in the first year or two of maturation or aging have an influence on which, well, for lack of a better term, which road the spirit is going on mm -hmm. for, for the next few years. So looking at the chemistry the kind of chemical makeup of of the of the cask you're you're looking at important compounds contained within the wood mm. things like oak lactones they play a huge part um and we'll come on talk about them in a, in a little bit but the, the oak lactones are there's two different types of oak lactones cis 
oak lactones and trans oak lactones. And as far as I can tell, the, the, the molecules, um, it's, it's um, the position of one of the hydrogen molecules is shifted. So they, they're the same, but they're different, kind of like mirror images of one another. And they, they act very much in the same way, but slightly differently. And one of them has a little bit more to say than the other. Mm -hmm. um, we've got eugenol and we've got vanillin. Now these oak lactones, eugenol and vanillin have been found to have the highest impact on flavor of whiskey that's um, matured in, in oak. There were some studies that have um, taken place where they called it aroma recombination studies. And, and it showed that if you omit your oak lactones and vanillins from the maturation process it has a huge impact on the resultant mm. whiskey. So that's just them proving that these things are important. But adding oak lactones and vanillins to refill casks didn't elevate those levels back to new oak levels. Mm. So these things, are, from what I've been reading, it sounds like even through rejuvenation and regeneration, recharring and toasting and scraping, all of these things, you won't get back to the levels of oak lactones, eugenol and vanillins that you get in your new wood. So that might be one of the things that's playing into that virgin oak thing where it's very overt and heavy and yeah. in your face. These, these kind of compounds never return to their original levels, even through quite aggressive levels of rejuvenation etc yeah yeah and is that is that where they're because where they're placed in in the layers of the wood so presumably the spirit the spirit's going to penetrate mm -hmm. between one and two centimeters but if you strip out one centimeter so that so the spirit might be put in the barrel and go another two centimeters deep but that extra centimeter doesn't contain the same lactones and, and vanillins yeah. as the as the, the layer that's been stripped out. Is that, yeah. is I, that think, it? I think my reading is once it's gone, it's gone. Right. And also presumably the 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 I'm putting two together, two and two together here and hoping hoping I'm making some sense, that the interaction with the spirit will change that chemical composition in that layer of the wood. The wood gets saturated with the stuff that's come out of the whiskey, whereas the whiskey gets saturated with what it's taken out of the wood. Mm -hmm. So over a period of time, the cask gets old because it's absorbed all the the stuff you don't want in the whiskey. It's now absorbed and it's it's stuck in the wood of those chemical compounds. Well, and, it, that, and the good stuff is in the whiskey and being drunk by people going, "That was a good cask." That yeah. Well, interestingly. I came across some information that kind of would, would make sense. So studies showed that emissions of compounds from the original distillate caused a very highly significant change in the aroma. So there again, this debunks to a degree that 60 to 80% of your flavor comes from the wood. If you take certain compounds out of your distillate and then mature that, your resultant whiskey is lacking in certain areas and they were able to ascertain that very few compounds from the new make are lost or degraded during maturation 
And what I'm taking from that is that the, ma the, the maturation changes the loss of a small number of new make aromas and the addition of wood aromas. It's all about their interaction. So a small amount of the new make is lost. And that, I think that's the sulfury stuff that you hear people talking mm -hmm. about. The, the cask is able to strip out the sulfur compounds. Um, but there's pretty much nothing else from your new make is lost. It's synthesized and it joins in a in that dance, that unknowable dance that we've not yet discovered really what's going on there. The new make and the oak are having these interactions. And that is the crux of what's going on in the cask. So you quite often hear taste notes and talking about you know there's a, a nice an okay woody kind of thing and obviously if it becomes too much then it's you know that's we're, we're going into the realms of an unbalanced whiskey that's maybe spent too much time uh, in cask but just to talk about those kind of wood aromas for a second they can come from the heartwood of the cask so the heartwood of the tree mm -hmm. um, but also the thermal degradation of wood constituents so when the cask is being made and it's getting heated to to um, allow the cooper to bend those staves or if it's being charred uh, prior to being used in a in bourbon production these thermal the thermal degradation process can release certain compounds that will have a big impact on the flavor those oak lactones i was talking about earlier on the the ratios vary within different oak species so your Quercus alba, Quercus robur, Melenbergi or whatever it was called they'll have different levels of these oak lactones different ratios of cis and trans oak lactones and even within they've been able to trace differences to different forests so same species of oak different forest might have a different ratio of cis and trans wow. oak lactones and that'll have a different impact on the on your maturation it was it was found that oak lactones are not formed during the heat treatment so they're there intrinsic in the in the in the in the wood and these oak lactones as i was saying earlier on can't be they can't be regenerated they can't be regained through the regeneration process and the heat treatment thing is is responsible for other elements like your vanilla is naturally present but by the process of heat treatment you can increase the, the 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 presence. You can increase the presence of the vanillins. Interestingly, if you if you if you're heating your cask up to two hundred degrees, that will increase the vanillins. But higher temperature higher temperatures and charring decreases the the amount of uh, vanillins in your wood. The the char layer. So when they're coopering the casks, and they're going to burn the inside of the stave, you're going to get a char layer of like charcoal that's burnt. Um, these char layers contain a few aromatics, but the thermal degradation allows reactions to promote certain aromatic compounds up to six millimetres inside the wood. So that's what you were talking about, getting inside the wood and all of these reactions taking place. So one of the reactions or interactions that, that takes place is that of um, something that's going to impact the mouthfeel and not necessarily the the aroma or the taste of the whiskey. Hydrolyzable tannins, so that's your kind of 
how would I describe them? Drying, very. Yeah, definitely very, drying around the edge of your tongue. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so then your teeth. Right. So these tannins um, are trying, these they're inherent in the, in the, in the, in the woods and the oak, but the tannins transform during heat treatment. And again, in maturation, they change again. And these tannins can be quite different in the whiskey compared to those that are in, in the oak. So there's the interaction there again, things are changing and things are breaking down. They're reacting, they're interacting. There's the breakdown of sugars going on as well, the hemicellulose, cellulose and hemicellulose. Are those sugar, the hemicellulose, is that sugars in the wood itself? Yeah, in the wood. Oh, so wow. the, I think hemicellulose makes up the majority of the, the bulk, the volume of, of a piece of wood. That's its kind of flesh, its body, you know? And these can, they're, these sugars are breaking down and reacting mm. with the spirit and... Um, they can be associated with flavours like sweet flavours or caramel or toasted aromas. So just to bullet point the reactions that are taking place, the char contributes little by way of colour or extractives. So the char layer doesn't give much to the whiskey, but it takes out that sulfuriness, I think. Mm. The char removes immature character in the sulphur notes. Evaporation rates are different for different alcohols within a cask. Oh yeah, I I like that's a good point. I think, and I you know it it turned my head. I have to say to understand that there are different things going on at different times in different places. Yeah, that I I think once I got my head around that, I understood. Well, for lack of a better term, there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. It's a deeply complex situation that you you know you've done really well. To, that's a lot of impressive reading there to try and get your head around that and put words to it. And yeah, so, I, I mostly stood with my tongue hanging out, going, uh. <laughs> <laughs> So that that's something that I hadn't really grasped or, or given much thought to that there's different there's different alcohols in your spirit. Oh. There's ethanol overall, but there's all sorts of different little alcohols. And they're all evaporating and interacting with the wood at different rates, at different times, different temperatures, different interactions going on. Yeah, I think I think that I I kind of my mind got a bit full. I think I kind of blew my own thinking. <laughs> I realised that the the aldehydes and the oxidise. I, th I think we said this already. And then you get they they lose a hydrogen atom. I think, and then you get to acetaldehyde, which is a toxin, so that's where your hangover is. Mm. And that, in turn, increases the acidity level of the spirit, which then another, another reaction then. So these acids react with the alcohol and they produce ethanol and acetic acid or ethyl acetate, which is where all the fruits and berries come from. Mm. And the, and the flavours, you no, know, the fruity flavours come from. Now, I, yeah, I, I had to stop and have, have a sit down at that point. That you, it wasn't just the spirit lying about and getting kind of mellow. That there's really quite a huge amount of chemical processes going on there. Tons, tons. Although, I was also reading that some of that, a very, very small amount of that, 
does go on if you put your new mate spirit in glass. Oof. So you know, so that's just to add another layer of my my own mind getting a bit <laughs> frazzled at this point. That actually, some of this chemical process goes. So some of it is just by being left to mellow. You know. Yeah. 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 Or or. The best, the best we do. How soup always tastes better the next day. <laughs> it's not been in. Well, do you keep your do you keep your soup in an oak cask? <laughs> well, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> and then just to just to just to tick off a couple of wee things. Stating this might come under the uh, heading of stating the bleeding obvious, but chemical reactions taking place throughout maturation. So the, the it's not just one big blast right at the start like you were saying um, and these can increase the esters and also give an opportunity for the hydrolyzable tannins to interact with the oxygen and the copper ions that the spirit has gathered from its time in contact with copper oh wow so all <laughs> the, that, that's just been sitting waiting and of course, it will be like you're saying, though. So, phase one, phase two, phase three. Well, I, I'm, and I'm not asking you to tell me which phase the copper ion started to get. <laughs> that is magical. So, there's all this latent possibility sitting there. Yeah. And so, presumably, that's why there's at least the legend or the myth that the older a whiskey is, the longer these phases will have had to change and round out and integrate just to play all yeah. of the complexities mm. of the alcohol over time yeah yeah wow and super that, sure and that's even before you get on to regenerated casks <laughs> <laughs> or, or even so refill casks i've got some stuff here you've got I'll, I'll just run through it really quickly. So it's going to sound like I'm reading from a list, and I am because I've got my nose here. Um, but you get your um, different cask type qualities. Uh, you, get, you get a different interaction between different distillates and different wood types. That stands to reason. So you, you might have um, new charred casks. It's going to give you woody, uh, vanilla, coconut elements. You might get something kind of resinous coming from the heat treatment of the heartwood so if you if you heat if you heat treat the heartwood you're going to get some kind of well it's going to have an effect and that might come out in a in a in a resin type aroma or note that you're able to pick up you've got your ex sherry casks so are going to give you all of your big dried fruit christmas cake sherry notes quite sweet the heartwood, in these cases, the, the the core bit of the of the wood of the oak, isn't being charred. Sherry casks are not charred. Mm. What happens here is the the heartwood is modified by sherry contact. So there's, as far as the spirit's concerned, there's high levels of extractives that could be masking some things in the spirit. Maybe you might you might find that your your sherry matured whiskey the sherry influence covers up something that's not quite working in your spirit and you've got obviously your ex-bourbon stuff uh, a little bit more dry or not as sweet as the sherry more floral much more vanilla because there's more vanillins in the wood and the heartwood would be 
subject to reactions with the there's a timer going um so the heartwood is going to be reacting quite a lot to the heat treatment refill casks the previous fill affects the character obviously evaporation might be more important as the char effect diminishes so you might find that if you've not recharred your cask then the aroma effect might be more important there seems to be a decrease of color so there's not there's not as much color there for the for the the spirit to extract and there's maybe less suppression of immature characters oak aromas are present to a less to a lesser extent and the wood can possibly now integrate spirit and enhance complexity to a little bit more degree so the wood's not quite as overt you get more kind of harmonious i'm interlocking my fingers you look you know everyone who's listening can see that yeah, that's a good trick for a podcast. <laughs> um, we could go on. Regener- regenerated casks. Um, the previous fill can still play a part. Um, the char can come into play a little bit. European oak would give you high levels of colour and extractives. U- US oak, a limited ability to reduce immature character. So it doesn't have the same effect as the heavily charred. And it won't have the same effect as the heavily sherried. Um mm. That all sounded kind of boring because I was just running through it, but... There's so much to fit in. Yeah. And then on each individual stave then will have an individual influence on the spirit. And you were mentioning a recent bottling by an organisation, I can't it's escaped me, but there was something like a celebration of American and Scot- Scottish spirit where they did half and half. So they had virgin oak and our half of virgin oak staves and half our former bourbon barrel staves. Is that right? Say there were second fill, second fill barrels wow. from, a, from a distillery, and they were using their own cask that they previously filled. And so, like you say, yeah, half the. I think it was it was a, a an homage to the relationship between the Coopers in Scotland and the the, the Coopers that, uh, in America. Wow, which is nice. Um, you know, why shouldn't these things be done? It's, I think it's great. And do you think we've got time to squeeze in a last one last comment or a comment on, do you think it matters where your warehouse is? Oh, oh, right. Just when you say that, I, I know where you're heading with, heading with this, but if I could just divert for just a couple of seconds. I know I've, I've talked a lot, but I found a, a scientific paper online published in the Journal of Food Chemistry. Um, That's and easy bedtime reading there. It definitely is not. <laughs> I'll maybe give you a couple of wee snippets of how technically obtuse it gets. But the, the title of the, of the study is Influence of Regionality and Maturation Time on the Chemical Fingerprint of Whiskey. And the objective of the study was to discriminate whiskies according to their geographical origin and to authenticate the mature the maturation time. So they're they're coming at this, I think, from a little bit of a fraud perspective. Mm. If you want to ascertain that that is a forty year old Speyside whiskey and it's not a three year old grain that they've put in there, there are now, or it's not a grain, but like maybe some other lesser regarded younger malt there are now 
according to this paper, there are now scientific ways in which they can actually do this and prove mm. where things have been, where they've originated from, I think, where they've matured and what age they are. So I've got a couple so of it's like a kind of modern biological archaeology. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the objective of this work was to go beyond our previous work and implement strategies by using statistical modeling to discriminate whiskies according to their geographical origin and authenticate the maturation time. And um, 106 mm -hmm. whiskey samples from 32 different distilleries in Scotland and from three to 43 years in maturation were analyzed. Um, there's page after page of how they did this. I should maybe give the guy who, uh, Chloe Roulier-Gall, Julie Signoret, Christian Coelho, Daniel Hemler, Matthew Kajan, Mariana Lucio, Bernard Schaefer, Re Regis D. Gugion, and Philippe Schmidt-Coplin. That's the, the, um, the authors of the study. You need to obviously give them a name check um, from the University of Burgoyne. So they were, able, they were able to show that 2,200 formulas, so that's like compounds from out of 5,979 that they could detect in all of these whiskies, 2,200 of these formulas of compounds were found in all the samples of the four groups of whiskey samples, confirming a great consistency in the chemical composition regardless of the origin. Well, it's whiskey, and we're right <laughs> back at the SWA saying it's yeah. whiskey. But the differences in intensities, in signal intensities, so they've measured stuff. The differences in signal intensities between whiskies can be found, which could result from particular distilleries, maturation times, geographical features, or environmental aspect impacts, or environmental impacts. The first two principal components showed a rough separation by their maturation time in battle. On principle, geographical origin appears less significant. The first two components allowed to separate whiskies into four distinct groups according to geographical origin, independent of the distillery or the maturation time. Perhaps interestingly, they found that the largest transfer of compounds from the barrel to the whiskey was observed between 10 and 12 years. Mm -hmm. so, there you go. When most of us would probably be looking at a good quality, affordable whiskey. You'd be zooming, zooming into those kind of years, wouldn't you? Those, those tend to come at a time when you're thinking, I, like, I might like what's going on there and yeah. can afford it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, just, I think it's interesting that folk are, are doing that kind of thing and they're able to pinpoint. Yeah, they're that's able so to that's so a remarkable level of, <laughs> of endeavour, isn't it? A remarkable level of analysis to get that deep into... They were able to pinpoint... They were able to pinpoint the region of where these, where the different blind spirits came from. So they were able to say whether it was Isla or Lowland or Highland or Speyside. They were able to do that. So I think that's quite astonishing. So that, we're into your argument about whether whether regions exist. Well, scientifically they do. Yeah, and that, that's certainly something I think we should explore. You know, and I think it's also, the, the, there are question marks about that given how because of the study of the distilling process, what distil individual distillers are able to do in terms of changing the shape of their, their spirit mm -hmm. that they're actually producing. I think. And maybe instead of being very definite, we could leave this a little bit more open-ended because I'm surprised actually getting to this point that we haven't 
I don't think we've mentioned that you can get different types of warehouses, you know, the different types of construction, different types of floors, different types of the way you you, you put the casts in there. So yeah. get your old classic romanticised dunnage warehouse, maximum three high, everything's on a damp, muddy, dirty floor, maybe a bit of concrete up and down to help access, but your casts are going to be no more than three high. Mm-hmm. In other ones, when it's racked, you might get, up to the eight or nine high and slightly larger, sometimes stone built, sometimes brick built buildings, not necessarily, but with a fairly rudimentary roof. But then others you're going to have, or, or, and all those casts are on their side, but you get other palletized warehouses where the casts are on their ends mm-hmm. and will be very high and in, into the roof. And of course, you've got different types of maturation going on, different types of chemical reactions going on. And depending where those casts are in the whole process, due to temperature and the inter- and all those interactions that are going on in that process, so skipping across this at three hundred miles an hour, going <laughs> wow! I'm just hoping I can shoehorn in my Duncan McGill, uh, the, my, my my joke that Duncan McGilvery told me about the fella in the <laughs> going go to the, shall I, shall I the health and safety gear. Aye, aye. I'll go on. <laughs> so, in, in the days before the health and safety executive uh, and the government bodies that would oversee workplace accident tribunals, if there was an accident in, in a warehouse way back, it would end up in front of the sheriff, in front of the sheriff court. So we, we were over in, at Brooklady and we're, Duncan was dipping from our cask and sharing, we're sharing sharing the Valinches around and and, uh, and having a wee taste of our cask. And uh, and Duncan's, we're wandering around the distillery and Duncan's entertaining us. And if anybody's ever met him, they'll, you know, you'll know that he's a genuinely lovely guy and sadly missed. And so he's, he's cracking on and telling us story after story after story. And we get into one of the warehouses where it's the, you know, it's racked. It's not the Dunnage warehouses racked and they're, they're, they're pretty high, you know, they're eight or 10 or 12 high. And he tells a story of, there was a, an accident, not a Brookladdy, but a, a warehouse where a cask fell off from one of the higher levels, fell down and hit one of the warehousemen, knocked his arm clean off and he was looked after by his colleague. And it ended up, the whole thing had to go to the sheriff court just to, you know, to a big accident at work. It's got to, you know, someone's got to oversee what happens there. So it ends up at a tribunal at, at Sheriff Court. And the fellow whose arm got knocked off, his mate is up in front of the sheriff judge. And the judge says, could you describe the demeanour of the uh, affected party just after he was struck by the cask? And the the warehouseman says, "How oh, your honour, he was a wee bit gurney. <laughs> it never gets old, that one. <laughs> and like, you can imagine that that's true. Yeah. He's a wee bit, bit gurney. He's just had yeah. his arm knocked off. Yeah. I'm not sure it'll be on Google Translate, but... No, it's your, uh, gr- a wee bit grumbly. A wee, wee bit, bit out of sorts. A wee bit moany. <laughs> yeah. So the understatement really... Uh, yeah, spoke volumes. Absolutely love it. So you're talking about 
warehouses we've yeah, I was trying to whiz through there in terms of and I, I wonder if actually where the warehouse is matters now there's a suggestion from that chemical analysis maybe yes but I wonder we've now, had we've, we've had we've had protracted conversations between you and I and, and other friends of ours about certain locations of warehouses and whether they yeah whether they do play a part or not. And you've, you've got um, a great visual image that you, sh we should, you should share. Um, well, I'm, I'd like to leave that to last because I'm having a slightly Thelma and Louise moment, I think, now that I'm... There's, I think there are things to say about, about warehouses, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that, that moment because I, I wonder where location fits in. And... Uh, We've mentioned Diageo already today. Now, I know that, I'm, I'm, uh, as I understand that they have a warehouse management policy that they run from a thrust. So uh, certainly across Speyside, they will they'll not put all the casts from one particular distillery in one particular warehouse. That, that makes sense. If, you know, if you've, and from a not putting your eggs all in one basket point of view for, for a cheap term. But also they've got their much larger warehouses in kind of central Scotland, like Black Grange comes to mind, where I'm led to believe all of Diageo's Kalila will be bonded. So what you have with these, you know, you can understand that maybe the the locale of, of around Speyside wouldn't might have the same influence on, on the spirit, character and development any more than where the cask is placed in the warehouse, mm -hmm. but can we fully explain the wonder that is that salty, briny, and for me, green olive note that you get in Kalila when not a drop of it has been matured on the island by Diageo, certainly, yeah. since the distillery was refurbished in 1972, 1973. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are, really peculiar phenomenon to get your head around that when there's a, a certain romance about where the cask is, its interaction with its atmosphere and place. I mean, so whiskey is so much about place when you're enjoying it. You enjoy it so much more when you're drinking it in situ. As, as you do many drinks, you know, when you go away to a particular place on, on your holidays, drinking the local beer or something certainly seems to add a certain something. Yeah. You know, when you're looking at those warehouses, and I remember, I remembered I was in Dumbarton the other day there, and I remembered the, the scourge of local Dumbarton folk is the Aspergillus nigrum. Yes. That, that black growth that feeds on the vapour, the mm -hmm. fungal fungi, growth that feeds yeah. on the vapour that comes out from from the alcohol. And, and I certainly, the, the, in fact, the place I've seen it most pronounced is in Jura, where it kind of hangs like wings on the trees in places. However, I just was digressing there to show off a bit of Latin that I really don't have. <laughs> but I think there's another element of chemistry that says, you know, that if, oh, if, if, if a whiskey's salty and briny, that must be the atmosphere it's in. Yeah, maybe there's something about the molecular structure of water and salt. How does that get in through the wood? If the water's inside and salt molecules and our briny molecules are larger, where's that interaction coming from? But for all of that, and finally getting to my Thelma and Louise point here, Stuart, 
as as you two are a great lover of that road from Kenna Craig down into Campbelltown, there's something wonderful about driving down that road, to the entire road, going towards Campbelltown. And even you know, when there's any kind of wind, the spray and the sea whips up mm. and you can see the saltiness in the, the sea spray yeah. coming onto the land. And, and accurate or not, there's something to behold about just the beauty of, of that scene. And it's awful hard not to think that that wonderful sea air must surely have some sort of influence on yeah. what's going on. In, in any particular whiskey that's maturing down in that peninsula. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's driven down there will completely understand and, and be able to visualise you're at Glen Bar and you drop down the hill and you big long straight along to Balakin Tea. And that's the first time it happened for me. You've got the big long straight and you can see the, as, as McCartney say, said, the mist rolling in from the sea. And then you rise up again just coming out of Balak and Tea, and you, you drop down again, uh, just further on, and then you hit Westport, and it's, you know, the, the the place is ridden with sea spray. How can that not affect something that's breathing in the air, as casks do? But the, you said the, the salt molecules are bigger than water molecules, so if the water can't get out, Unless it's vapor, how does the how does the how does the salt molecule get in? And I've, it goes back to the interactions. I think these interactions that we haven't that nobody's fully explained or understood yet. That that's that thing that we perceive as a salty, briny, or whatever flavor could be the result of a chemical reaction that's taken place in the cask. And it may well be that that chemical reaction only takes place when the conditions allow it. And those conditions might be when it's situated in a coastal environment. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to be proved wrong that there isn't a coastal element to, to whiskey production. I'd, 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 I'd like somebody to, to, to really nail it down and, and, and say, here, this is what's happening. Taste it. And I don't know. Well... There's so many variables, Peter. You know, we've talked about this all the way through. There's so many ins and outs and ups and downs and, and roundabouts. There's so many things happening that we're, we're never going to get to the end of it. It's just going to be, we're just going to keep on exploring. I I like that we've not, for all, this has been a gorgeous long and very, at times very intense and Edmonds and time of, of looking at all of what's going on. I like that we haven't nailed anything down. And if it works for you, is to have a taste. I like I like the the bit that for all we've we've dived in here very deeply, and for all we've we've tried to nail down some sense of what's it. I think we have along the way, but ultimately there's only one way to know if what's going on works for you, and that's that's to have a dram. <laughs> yes, yes. And that I I think that's the right place to stop. Yeah, talking about whiskey too much ends up feeling a little bit like dancing about architecture. It doesn't really. It's great to talk about it. It's just yeah. it's one of this. It's, it's one of the most intriguing things I've ever come across. 
and who better to chat it over with than your good self and I'll take you up on your on your suggestion that it's a good place to to stop and have a dram yeah used to the dramming but here's to the warehouse men and women I think looking after all the casks rolling the casks day in and day out and you know filling the casks and emptying the casks here's here's to you cheers cheers cheers